This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. On the 5th of October, a symposium was held at CTR under the rubric The Art of Listening, a symposium to mark the 40th anniversary of Collegium Patristicum Lundense. And the first speaker of the event is Carol Harrison, Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity at Oxford University, speaking on the topic of sounding silence, the art of listening to music in the early church. And now for introduction to both the symposium as a whole and to Carol Harrison, I now hand over the word to Professor Samuel Rubinson and Professor Samuel Bischkok. Everybody, I'm Samuel Rubinson, and I'm the so-called preses of Collegium Patristicum Lundense, and have been so for too many years now. Uh, I'm very happy to see you all here to celebrate with us our 40th anniversary, and to have this small symposium on the art of listening perhaps an art that we don't think enough about. I hope you all have the program. Uh, I just want to say that uh, if you haven't registered with Simon, you can do so in the break. And if you haven't paid the registration fee, you can do so then. Outside, we have a table with some of the publications of the Collegium its annual, the conference volumes, and translations that we have done. And uh, at this special occasion, we'll sell them a uh, much lower price than normal. So if you are interested in our old publications, have a look at them during the break. I think with that, I'll just ask the Dean of our Faculty of Theology here at Lund University, Professor Samuel Byskog, to greet you all. Welcome from the faculty and the university. Please, summon. The Faculty of Theology at Lund University is very, very pleased to welcome you to this symposium marking the 40th anniversary of Collegium Patristicum Lundense. Our faculty Faculty of Theology is as old as the university, which is very old. The Collegium is somewhat younger, but almost as old as some younger faculties of our university, and certainly older than several departments within the faculties of humanities and theology. Together with patristics, it has been somewhat of a research department or research section within our faculty, with its specific profile enriching the research environment of the entire university. Only some of you, if any, were present in 1979 when Perbesco, Perbesco took the initiative 
to establish a collegium devoted to the study of the history and theology of the early church. As many of you know, Besco had himself been teaching in several disciplines, was extremely learned in broad fields of antiquity, and set the standard for the scope and academic excellence of the Collegium. It was a special pleasure for the faculty to award him our Anders Nygren Prize in 2011, being a prize to him and indirectly also to his heritage manifested in the research of this Collegium. Patristics in Lund has, under the leadership of Professor Samuel Rubenson, established itself as a leading research center, and the faculty has in several ways benefited from its international reputation. It has happened to me personally at some occasions when introducing myself to colleagues in different places in Europe and elsewhere, that they have gladly and with much respect and much enthusiasm told me that they are familiar with the work I've done together with my colleagues in Lund. Mostly these flattering words were caused by a confusion between the two Samuels, <laughs> so that their praise was actually directed to patristics in Lund, as represented by Professor Rubenson. I have been very glad to sort out that confusion at the conferences where I met my colleagues, to the embarrassment of my colleagues. Patristics and the Collegium in Lund form an almost symbiotic union at the fourth floor of our department building. Together they have inspired people, people who have evaluated the research of our faculty, inspired them to give the highest grade to the faculty and to patristics or to church history. They have received significant grants and conducted successful projects setting the standard for much of our faculty. From the faculty, I wish today to say a special welcome to our guest from Oxford, Professor Carol Harrison, and to the other participants, Jane Svenungsson, Uffe Holmsgaard Eriksen, Anna Maria Lato, Witte Lechtipu, Hugo Lundhaug and John Wayne Kaufman. Warm welcome to all of you, to our faculty. And let me also finally express the deepest joy of the faculty and the faculty dean to celebrate another conference, another anniversary with our esteemed co-worker Samuel Rubenson. We are all happy to see you here today. And I hope you will all enjoy this symposium on listening, that you will be listening carefully. And remember the Collegium for its 40 years of excellency. And this brings us to our first speaker. And it's actually a book title of Professor Carol Harrison that inspired us to set this as the theme 
of this symposium and to reflect on listening as part of our scholarly work in patristics. And we are very happy that Carol accepted the invitation to come here. I got to know her in the International Association for Patristic Studies, where we were in the executive together, and that were nice years. And we are so happy to hear about the art of listening. So very welcome to Professor Carol Harrison. Thank you to both Samuels, to the Dean for your kind words and warm welcome. And to my colleague and friend Samuel Rubinson for his invitation and for everything he's done to, to organise this event. So today I'd like to talk about, um, the title of my paper is Sounding Silence, the Art of Listening to Music in the Early Church. In Christchurch Cathedral in Oxford on Trinity Sunday, we sang the hymn, let all mortal flesh keep silence. I don't know whether you're familiar with it. It's based on the Cherubic hymn of the Liturgy of St James, a hymn which is itself probably of a much earlier date. And it alludes to the vision of Isaiah chapter 6 and the threefold hymn of the Cherubim, which we sing now as the Sanctus. It begins, Let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand. Ponder nothing earthly-minded. For with blessing in his hand, Christ our God to earth descending, comes our homage to demand. And the last verse is, At his feet the six-winged seraph, cherubim with sleepless eye, veil their faces to the presence as with ceaseless voice they cry, Alleluia, 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 Lord Most High. As the resident patristic scholar who regularly lectures on the Trinity, my fellow canons clearly felt I was best placed to preach that morning. But afterwards I reflected that almost every other element of the service, the doxologies, the hymns, the prayers, the choir, they sang a setting from Lassus, did a much better job at communicating something of the mystery of the Divine Trinity than the sermon did. And I say this not through any self-effacing humility, but with a sense that we approach the subject of the ineffable God and we do so as theologians faced with what is really a contradiction in terms. How can we say anything about what is ineffable? How can we, created, temporal, mutable human beings, say anything at all about our transcendent creator? Early Christian theologians agreed that between humankind and God, there lies a yawning ontological divide, a profound place of deep silence, the silence of divine incomprehensibility and ineffability. And so reflecting on how Paul responded to this deepest of mysteries, Augustine observes, I quote, 
when the Apostle Paul had come to that profound place of deep silence, he cried out as if struck by fear of its very depth, O oh, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. And he adds that the Apostle does not so much open up that great silence by explanation as commend it with a sense of wonder. In a treaty against those who thought that the divine nature could be comprehended and defined, Gregory Nazianzen similarly observes, I quote, the only name that signifies the divine nature is the wonder that arises ineffably in our souls concerning it. So following Augustine and Gregory, I'd like to suggest in this lecture that one of the ways in which that great silence of divine ineffability was opened up, and one of the ways in which the awe and wonder it inspired was heard in the early church was through listening to music. Through a process of first hearing the mysteries of the faith as they were conveyed to the ears through music and then responding to it in praise. It's this listening and response which I've tried to capture in the expression sounding silence. It's meant to express the notion that although early Christian theologians were acutely aware that they could never entirely apprehend God's essence, they were persuaded that through attending to and through listening to his words and works, they were at least able to take soundings of his nature as a deep-sea probe sounds or explores the depths of the sea. And in response to these soundings, they were then prompted to respond or to sound forth God's mystery in songs of praise. It's this sounding of the depths of God's silence and then sounding it forth in music. It's in this context that reason and discursive intellectual understanding are of very limited use. What's at work here might be better described as an awareness, an effective knowledge, or even a carnal knowledge. What my patristic colleague Robert Wilkin has described as a sensuous intelligence. It's an intelligence, a knowing, which is acquired through encounter and response, and most especially through the delight and love, the wonder and awe, inspired by hearing, listening, and responding to God's words and works towards us. But as scholars of the early church, all more than aware, sense perception and the passions, all things temporal, mutable and corporeal, were a matter of deep-seated suspicion for early Christians. They were thought to all too readily distract and tempt the faithful away from God and hold them fast to the world. Music, especially performed music, rather than the rational study of its numerical principles, 
and even more music played on instruments, which resonated with a whole host of undesirable associations from its use in paganism, was most definitely regarded as one of these distractions. But on reflection, and painfully aware that all things sensuous can't simply be avoided and evaded, early Christian thinkers tend to conclude that what really matters is how we use them. The crucial thing is that we shouldn't take them as ends in themselves and effectively idolise them, but rather in contemplating their order and their beauty, we encounter the unknowable and ineffable God in and through them. Not through reason, for this would be to set up another idol, but through the faith and the worship that they inspire. And hearing and listening to music, I think, is one such encounter. This movement from an encounter with God who prompts us to sound his depths to our response in which we sound forth his praise is a process which Gregory Nazianzen illustrates in terms of listening and in terms of listening to music specifically in his account of Moses' ascent of Mount Sinai. Hearing the loud sounding trumpets as he ascends Mount Sinai which Gregory variously interprets as the voice of creation listening to its creator the sound of the law and the prophets or the preaching of apostles and evangelists. He suggests that Moses heard them not only with his physical ears but with his inner ears, with his mind so that he formed a mental image or conception of what he'd heard. And it was through this mental image created by listening by physical sound and sense perception, that he was able to apprehend God's divine power and penetrate to the place where God is, to the dazzling darkness of the unknowable and invisible God, and to subsequently communicate this experience of divine transcendence to those who remain below through what Gregory calls a material imitation. So for Gregory, listening creates a mental image. The mental image provides an intuition of the divine, which in turn leads to an encounter with God's invisible, unknowable, ineffable presence. And this encounter is subsequently communicated to other people through a material imitation. It's this movement that I'll be exploring in the rest of this lecture, as I think it sums up the way in which early Christian theologians understood listening, and especially listening to music, to have a role in apprehending the unknowable God and in expressing him. In a well-known passage in his Confessions, Confessions Book 10, Augustine reflects on the extraordinary power that music possesses to move the listener. And forgoing his uneasy, his very uneasy and profound ambivalence towards it, he expresses this process in a way that emphasises 
its effective dimension. He writes, I quote, that since all the varied emotions of the human spirit respond in ways proper to themselves, to a singing voice and to song, which arouse them by appealing to some secret affinity, and since through the pleasure of the ear a weaker mind may rise up to loving devotion, this is reason enough for music to be included rather than excluded from worship. So we respond intuitively and music inspires what he calls a loving devotion and both for him are persuasive reasons for holding on to music and worship rather than letting go of it. It's an important text because it's a rare text in patristic literature to be so positive about the use of music. It's one that the Byzantine musicologist Alexander Lingas has described as a smoking gun. It's exploding with questions. Most of all, what is that secret affinity to music that even weaker minds experience? Why does listening to beautiful music affect us so that it causes pleasure and moves us to what Augustine calls loving devotion. And how do we express that loving devotion? Well, the first clue to answering these questions might be found in what many early Christian theologians identify as what they think of as an innate sense of perception, which is able to intuitively respond to order and to beauty when they're encountered in corporeal things, and most especially, of course, when they're heard in music. In his early treaty, which was devoted to music, Augustine describes what he calls a natural sense of listening, a sense which is able to intuitively judge whether the form or rhythm of a piece of poetry or a phrase of music sounds right or wrong, and which responds to right rhythm with delight and pleasure. So we're somehow able to intuitively judge. We have an innate sense of what's right and what's wrong when we hear something, and we respond to that which is beautiful. Presumably we judge which that which is discordant is disagreeable, and um, we reject it. The observation that when the psalms are sung, they directly resonate with and are immediately accessible to all different types of hearer, to male and female, to young and old, to learned and unlearned, to children, to peasants, to sailors, even to women, is a well-known topos in early Christian reflection on the importance of singing, as opposed to simply saying the psalms. In this context, Gregory Nazianzen, following Athanasius, though both are no doubt citing a very well-known example, describes what he calls an instinctive law, whereby we're able to intuit the invisible craftsman and player from looking, just simply looking at and hearing a beautifully crafted lyre and hearing it played. As he puts it, I quote him, no one seeing a beautifully elaborated lyre 
with its harmonious, orderly arrangement and hearing the lyre's music will fail to form a notion of its craftsman and its player. To recur to him in thought, though ignorant of him by sight. In this way, the creative power which moves and safeguards its object is clear to us, though it's not to be grasped by understanding. So again, intuitive listening, intuitive judgment. Now a further clue might be found in the classical theory of cosmic harmony, or the harmony of the spheres, which from its discovery by Pythagoras became a basic, albeit often tacit premise, of most philosophy, religion and science until the 17th century. Although it's now rather overlooked and somewhat scorned, it was a theory which early Christian theologians evidently found to be compatible with a Christian understanding of creation. Indeed, the Christian understanding of God as the source of harmony, as the creator, sustainer and restorer of harmony, in the macrocosm of the cosmos as well as the microcosm of the human body, in the order of history, in the incarnation, in the sacraments. That understanding was one which literally enchanted Christian theology with music and meant that any encounter with God was one which was heard in some sense as music and often led to praise of course expressed in music. So music was acknowledged to be the means by which God sounded forth his silence. A way in which that silence could be heard and in turn a medium through which it could be sounded forth in songs of worship and praise. In other words, music gave silence a voice. That idea of a natural sense or instinctive law, and the classical theory of cosmic harmony then, might well serve to begin to explain the secret affinity which Augustine thinks we have for music. For the soul itself, our soul, is itself a microcosm of that harmony. And hearing it, we inevitably resonate with it. We delight in it, we're moved by it. And we're moved by it to loving devotion to its source. We actually see this well before Augustine's Confessions in his De Musica where precisely those terms which he uses to describe the existence, truth, goodness and beauty of divine being, that is, form, measure, number, harmony, unity, are also the terms which he uses to describe the characteristic properties of music and of poetry. In his well-known letter to Marcellinus on the Psalms, Athanasius also seems to have had the microcosmic harmony of the soul in mind, a harmony which is both expressed in and informed by music, when he observes in relation to the singing of the Psalms and Canticles that, I quote, 
The Lord, wishing the melody of the words to be a symbol of the spiritual harmony in a soul, has ordered that the odes be chanted tunefully and the psalms recited with song. So, beautifully singing praises, he, the singer, brings rhythm to his soul and leads it, so to speak, from disproportion to proportion. Similarly, in his inscriptions on the Psalms, Gregory of Nyssa observes, I quote him, the music perceived in the universe is seen in the miniature cosmos, I mean human nature. Following Athanasius, Gregory then suggests that it's not in saying the Psalms, but in listening to them being sung, or better, in the very act of singing them ourselves, that we discover that cosmic harmony within ourselves and are simultaneously informed, delighted and reformed or healed by it. He writes, David, the author of the Psalms, David combined singing with the philosophy concerning the virtues thereby pouring the sweetness of honey, as it were, over these sublime teachings. In this singing, nature reflects on itself in a certain manner and heals itself. We should therefore not forget that for all their ambivalence about the ways in which hearing and performing music might risk moving the soul in the wrong direction, for early Christian theologians it was no more and no less than an expression of the divine nature of God himself. But why silence? Well, it was generally held that the music of the spheres couldn't actually be heard by mortal ears. The reasons why this is the case vary. It was held that we're so familiar with the ever-present sound of the, the spheres turning that we no longer hear it. Or, alternatively, that the sound was so great and so deafening that human hearing can't catch it. Or rather intriguingly, it was suggested that although the spheres are always in motion, their sequence is always the same. That what Gregory Nazianzen calls this impossible blend of opposites, of movement and stasis, of sound and silence, mean that there's no contrast by which their music can be heard. So the music of the spheres then is everywhere, ordering everything. In Gregory's words, it's the primal, archetypal, true music a blended and marvellous hymn of the power that controls the universe. But it's also silent and unspoken. It's, I quote him, it's the music which the conductor of the universe skillfully strikes up in the unspoken speech of wisdom through ever-occurring movements. To ask how we're able to hear and to listen to this silent music then is much the same as asking how we can hear the unknowable and ineffable God. In his wonderful survey of silence in the Christian tradition, my Oxford colleague Dermot McCulloch 
has drawn our attention to the ways in which the silence of the unknowable God became itself an eloquent and articulate expression of his being. As a negative or apophatic quality, long recognised by the philosophers before it was captured the imaginations of early Christian theologians, which tells us not what the divine nature is, but what it isn't. Silence actually serves to capture a good deal more of the fathomless, mysterious depths of the divine being than words ever can. Yet, the very fact that we're able to speak of God at all indicates that God's silence is not unbroken. We wouldn't be here if that was the case. The divine depths, like the music of the spheres, are not only an unvarying, fathomless, deafening silence, but they're also sounded forth. And so as we observed at the beginning of this lecture, hearing or sounding the depths of God's silent music often took the form of encountering and contemplating his gracious words and works, his creation, his providential dispensation, his incarnation, all of which, before the awe and wonder they inspire, can be sounded forth in songs of praise. In the second theological oration, it's oration 28, we therefore find Gregory Nazianzen concluding a homily on the unknowability of God with a long, explosive prose poem recounting the awe-inspiring wonders and intricate workings of every aspect of creation. In the face of all this unfathomable, overwhelming, awe-inspiring beauty and order, Gregory's clearly aware that we're all prompted to ask, why? Why should all this be? But he's also clear that we must ultimately acknowledge that this isn't so much a question as an expression of wonder. One that can only be articulated in faith and in worship. So his praise of creation thereby simultaneously sounds or plums the depths of God's silence, the author of all this wondrous beauty, and offers us a stunning example of the wonder and praise which sounds forth in response. Augustine often sounds the same theme. He describes the beauty of creation as its confession of God. Its beauty is its voice. And he observes that, I quote, the world itself, in all its ordered change and movement and in all the beauty it presents to our sight, bears a kind of silent testimony to the fact of its creation and proclaims that its maker could have been none other than God, ineffably and invisibly great, the ineffably and invisibly beautiful. So commenting on Psalm 26, he describes our response to the silent music and creation in joyful cries of praise. He quotes the psalmist, I've travelled round and now I've offered in his tent a sacrifice of great joy. And he urges his congregation, Let your mind roam round the whole creation. From all sides creation will call to you, 
God made me. Whatever delights you in art points you to the artist. And all, this, all the more so if you go round the whole created order. Gazing on it fills you with longing to praise its maker. Everything everywhere shouts back to you the name of the creator. And the various beauties of created things are a chorus of praise to him. Having reviewed the manifold beauty and order of creation in a manner very similar to Gregory, he concludes, like him, that no words can do justice to it, that our sacrifice must be one of superabundant and inexpressible gladness, as he puts it, not with words, but with the wordless cries of rejoicing. This, he says, is our offering of great joy. If human speech has such a struggle with these creatures of God, what is it to say of the creature unless rejoicing alone remains when speech has fallen silent? Meanwhile, as Basil makes clear, Basil of Caesarea makes clear to Eunomius, the works by which the silence of the unknowable God becomes known extend well beyond the beauties of his creation. His silence is also sounded to the ears of faith in the manifest order and harmony of his gracious providence, his justice and judgment, which enable those who confront them first to believe and then to worship. He writes, I quote, For what we say we know is God's greatness, his power, his goodness, his providential care for us and the justice of his judgment, not his actual essence. So early Christian theologians often refer to God's creation and providence, not just with the analogy of music, but is actually constituted by it. Here, music isn't just a metaphor, it's not just an illustration, but it's ontological. If the order of creation and providence is music, if it's measure, order, harmony and rhythm, this is the case because it comes into being through God's voice. It's the song of his providence, the means by which we hear and respond to him in faith and worship. So, in On Music, and at various points in his confessions, I'm thinking especially of Book 11, Augustine uses the first line of a Christian hymn, Ambrose's Deus Creator Omnium, God the Creator of All, to demonstrate that human life is in fact characterised by the fact that it's suspended in space and time that it's only apprehended through remembering what's past, attending to what is present, anticipating what is to come. In other words, it's always moving. We can't take anything as an end in itself. So just as we wouldn't want a line of poetry or a song to stop mid-phrase, so it is with our life in the world. We must look to the end, and that end is God, the creator and orderer. 
God's providential order and harmony, which we apprehend best in listening, in listening to, or better, performing, ordered, temporal, open-ended verse, music, in this instance a Christian hymn, enables us to do this. As we know, early Christian theologians often expressed this providential order and harmony which sounds the divine silence in terms of God's economia, or divine economy, which essentially consists of patterns of divine activity, of prophecy and fulfilment, of a divine education, as it were, leading from Old Testament to New Testament, to the Church and then to the present age. And it shouldn't surprise us, I suppose, that we often find these patterns described in terms of ordered sound, in terms of a narrative, a poem, or more specifically, a song. A carmen universitatis, as Augustine puts it, which leads the hearer to respond in answering song. Nor do I think it's accidental that Augustine mentions his admiration of God's providence and the way in which he was deeply moved by the singing of the church in Milan, in pretty much the same breath. He writes, I quote, I found insatiable and amazing delight in considering the profundity of your purpose for the salvation of the human race. How I wept during those hymns and songs. I was deeply moved by the music of the sweet chants of your church. So God's ineffable silence is sounded in the beautiful voice of his creation and the harmonious song of his providential economy. But it's perhaps most clearly heard when the word, which he eternally brings forth from his silence, becomes incarnate. The begetting of the word from the essence of the Father, of course, lies at the heart of Christian theology. But it's Ignatius who, as far as I'm aware, first evocatively draws our attention to the emergence of the word of God from silence. In the well-known passage from his letter to the Magnesians, he speaks of the virginity of Mary and the birth and death of Jesus as, I quote, three mysteries for crying out that were wrought in the silence of God. He writes of the, I quote, one sole God who has revealed himself in his Son, Jesus Christ, word of his own from silence proceeding, who in all that he was and did gladdened the heart of him who sent him. That God's essence or substance is one that sounds forth its silent mysteries so that they can be heard by human ears is often expressed in Christian tradition in terms of the eternally generative or relational character of the divine nature. Commenting on Psalm 45, my heart overflows with a good word. Um, we often used to say, my heart is inditing, it's eruptawit, um, we'll see, it literally means my heart is belching forth. Augustine similarly suggests that in these words, the psalmist is describing the begetting of the word by God. My heart overflows with a good word. Whereby God brings forth from his own heart, from his innermost being, 
the word. But Augustine then offers an alternative explanation. My heart overflows with a good word. Could also, he suggests, refer to the spontaneous praise and thanksgiving which overflow from the heart of the believer in response to God's beauty. An act which is in fact simply a giving back to God of his own gifts. He observes, I quote, It is proper to God to delight you by his beauty and your business to praise him with thanksgiving. Let your praise be offered to God. Let your heart overflow with his good word. He has created you for this purpose and himself given you what you are to offer him. Give back to him his own gifts. It's impossible not to see here a parallel between God's silent, eternal, begetting of the word from his own mysterious depths and our own noisy, temporal eruption of thanksgiving and praise for these mysteries. Indeed, in a sermon on the natures of Christ, Augustine describes the beloved disciple John reclining on our Lord's breast at the Last Supper, drinking in the mystery of the word and then belching it forth, the same verb, eructare, sounding its silence, as it were, in this gospel. He writes, The Lord of the feast, after all, would hardly allow his disciple to fill his belly at that table and not fill his mind at his breast. He, for his part, having drunk his fill, gave a good belch. And that very belch is the gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It was in the beginning with God. Well, belching is, of course, far removed from music. And yet, as we've already seen, one of the ways in which we respond to an encounter with God's truth and goodness and beauty is to jubilate, to sing wordless songs of spontaneous delight and praise. Clearly, our sounding forth of silence is an echo of God's silent, spontaneous begetting of the word. It's an overflowing of delight, which gives expression to what is welling up within us and must be expressed. So singing isn't always harmonious and ordered. But it's not only the eternal begetting of the word, but the incarnation of the word that's significant in this context. Origen is by no means alone when he describes the, etern the economy of the eternal God, word of God's descent to accommodate himself to us by speaking in baby language, by cooing and babbling and making silly nonsense sounds until we're able to hear the sophisticated sounds of theology. A good deal of recent research has focused on music as a sort of pre-verbal way of communicating, one that emerged before human speech, so that through its ordered sounds and rhythms, human beings could communicate directly with each other. And there's a lot in early Christian thought to support this idea. Classical music, musical theorists such as Aristides Quintilianus held that music was especially useful in forming the minds of the young, who had yet to learn language and the academic disciplines, so that it was able to form what he describes as a concept or notion in the mind of the listener, 
which gave them, as he puts it, an intellection of intangibles, without the need for the sort of images which would later be impressed on the mind and reason, so words and language. Eusebius likewise observes that, I quote, just as, the mus just as a musician shows a skill by means of his lyre, so Christ called men and healed them freely by means of the human instrument which had been brought into being. So here, Christ's human body is literally an instrument upon which the divine musician plays. Augustine later reflects on the sacramental aspect of this incarnate music. Preaching on Psalm 135, verse 3, Praise the Lord, for he is good. Sing to his name, for he is sweet. Augustine observes that God has enabled us to taste his ineffable goodness and sweetness, which would otherwise, he says, be too great a thing, too high and remote, by himself becoming man and the mediator, Jesus Christ. That tasting his sweetness in the sacrament, we're moved to respond in praise expressed in song. Therefore, he says, sing to his name, for he is sweet. If you have tasted, then sing. If you have tasted how sweet the Lord is, then sing. If what you have tasted good taste, tasted tastes good, then praise him. The fact that sweet is the most commonly used adjective to describe music in both classical and Christian literature is, of course, worth noting here. Music is nothing if not mellifluous, pleasing and delightful. And in this instance, a fitting response to the taste of divine sweetness. So, listening to sound, beautiful, sweet, non-verbal sound, could communicate the eternal word to the immature, the uneducated or the illiterate through their ears, without the need for words. Much of what early Christian theologians have to say about psalm and hymn singing and the effect of listening to psalms and hymns being sung can be read in this context. It's clearly not so much the words that matter as the sound. They comment on the act of singing which unifies a congregation, on the emotion or feelings that singing gives rise to. They comment on the effect that singing has on the soul. And they frequently comment on the way in which singing can convey the mysteries of the faith to an uneducated congregation. How am I doing for time? Five minutes? Yep. So, listening to sound. I think I'll... Um, beautiful, sweet, non-verbal sound. Could communicate the eternal word. I've read that. This is fine. The relation of sound and words is a huge subject, but before I conclude, I'd like to explore just a little further the idea that it's precisely the sound or shape of music that provides an effective means of communicating what would otherwise lie beyond our capacity to understand or express in words. 
that musical sound does this by accommodating the ineffable to human perception so that it can be apprehended and expressed in a way that isn't dependent on intellectual understanding or even on verbal formulation. Indeed, we might suggest that it's the very absence of words which enables music to sound silence. There's a sense in which things are present to us only because they're framed by absence. So sound is framed by silence, rhythm by rests, harmony by intervals, words by pauses, and the incarnate word by the silence of God. What's absent is as, is as significant as what is present. The meaning, as it were, is in the gaps. As Augustine puts it in relation to singing. Thus, I quote him, when we sing, the moments of silence at certain and measured intervals, although they're privations of sound, still are well ordered by those who know how to sing, and they contribute something to the sweetness of the whole melody. As so many early Christian mystical texts, such as Gregory of Nyssa's Life of Moses, which we've come across, make clear in developing a negative, apophatic theology. God's presence is one which is seen in darkness and heard in silence. It's touched in absence. We only become aware, however, of the darkness and the silence through the absence of light and sound. And this rather contradictorily means that we must first be aware of the light and sound in order to appreciate their absence and begin to know what the darkness and silence are. The latter can never be comprehended or fathomed. They're infinite and boundless. But we can only become aware of them precisely by what is finite and bounded. And of course, the finite and bounded should never be idolised or taken as an end in itself. Listening to sound must always give way to silence, as sight gives way to darkness. Being inherently non-literal, open-ended, elusive, and as we've seen, intuitive, and its order and beauty cognised effectively rather than rationally, music, I think, lends itself to resisting that idolisation of images far better than words. And so to conclude, I think the sort of qualities which we've enumerated as constitutive of cosmic harmony and in a Christian context identified as of God and from God Qualities such as measure, number, order, harmony, unity, by which God draws creation from nothing, gives it existence and beauty and goodness and providentially orders it, are those qualities which early Christian theologians used to describe music. They're precisely those qualities by which God, as it were, and Augustine puts it, tempers his praise accommodates himself to us, condescends to us, and enables us to see, or better hear, his silence. Music, then, is the way in which God sounds his silence 
and also the way in which we're able to hear it and respond to it. Thank you.